Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now I don't take it for granted that uh, everyone is just hanging on all the things that I've ever uh, shared here from the pulpit, but it's at least possible that at this point, after all of these long and difficult years of listening to me uh, preach up here for a while, that you might have have uh, stumbled upon the fact that this chapter is really important to me and to my faith. This uh, chapter uh, has been life-changing for me in a way that, that not every chapter in God's Word has been personally. Um, this was a course-correcting chapter for me uh, that I came across at a very difficult and crucial point in my own life. And I think this morning that the message of this chapter should be carefully considered and received with thought and evaluation uh, by you this morning. Um, I want to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 4 and lead into uh, the, the application. Verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, and not with solid food. For until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And we'll pause there. Now, the language here of I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, it stretches back to what we've previously looked at here in chapter 1 in this letter to Corinth, that there were divisions in the Corinthian church. And uh, what we find here is that all of what we've been reading from chapters 1 through 3 are all still Paul's dealing with the same fundamental issue, but he's taken a different approach. You'll notice, if you were here last week, that chapter 2 begins to pause and talk about spiritual wisdom. At least that's the subheading that you'll find in in many Bibles around verse 6. Spiritual wisdom. The criticism that Paul was receiving from the Corinthian people, and we shouldn't be surprised that he was receiving criticism. That's kind of part and parcel with the deal. The criticism that he was receiving was, well, he came and the church got started and so there was a lot of good that came out of it. But his speaking and his, perhaps his presentation, uh, it wasn't as polished as some of the other speakers that we've heard of around here. And his message, while it was good and we needed to hear it about Jesus, this Messiah whom God had sent and who had given his life for the redemption of our souls, while that message was important for us to hear, it didn't deal with a lot of the practical concerns that we have. Like, how do I make money? Or, what do I do in my marriage? Or, whatever, on and on and on. It, wasn't, it didn't give us a lot of practical wisdom. It wasn't delivered in an incredibly polished way. And they begin to choose, for better or worse, in this case worse, kind of teachers to fashion themselves after. And the teachers that are referenced here don't seem in and of themselves to be bad choices. Paul is one of them. If you go back to verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, some of you are saying, I am of Paul. Well, Paul was a good teacher. Others are saying, I am of Apollos. If you've read the book of Acts, or if you'd like to cross-reference Apollos in the Bible, you'll find that Apollos was very highly spoken of as a Christian teacher in the book of Acts. He wasn't a bad teacher. He wasn't a heretic. Others were saying, I am of Cephas. That's Peter. You know, we don't have any words of condemnation for what Peter is teaching in the early church. And even others are saying, well, I am of Christ, which, I mean hypothetically that's what they all should have been saying right i mean nevertheless they had found totally apart from the actual teaching of these 
men, they had found cause to divide themselves up and segment them among the teachers. They were developing, if you will, different spiritual classes within their Christian fellowship and debating perhaps about which spiritual school of thought or school of wisdom was superior to the others. Now, in a certain sense, they could be excused from taking this very natural approach because they come out of a culture that celebrates Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy was all about competing ideas, competing views of the world. And there were those who thought the world should all be about pleasure and satisfying yourself. And there was a whole hedonistic philosophy around self-gratification. Hedonism was a, a philosophy developed in ancient times. And then there were others who said, no, that's not right. You need, your life should be about utility and what you bring to society. And that's how you should look at the world. And they would debate these philosophies among themselves. And so here you have people, human beings, who came out of a culture of debating and competing philosophies. They are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's no surprise that they bring their cultural basis, their cultural grounds for looking at the world and understanding the world into this Christian experience. And they bring it into the Christian experience in a very unhelpful way. And Paul has taken them, these guys to task a little bit and in verse 6 of chapter 2, and this is where we were at last week, he begins to tell them, look, we have words of great spiritual wisdom, but we deliver spiritual wisdom to spiritual people. Because there's no point in delivering, in delivering spiritual wisdom until you're talking to spiritual people. If you try to tell people that the answer to, let's say, the problem they're having in their marriage is seeing their spouse as the gift that God has provided for them and an opportunity to love and serve faithfully the spouse as they would love and serve God. If you try to deliver, and you could expound on that for a long time, but if you try to deliver that kind of message to non-spiritual people, it's going to sound like a bunch of foolishness. They just want to know how to stop fighting or how to get along, or how to deal with this problem, or this argument that they're having, or whatever it is. How to get over this big, you know, awful circumstance they've experienced, whatever it is. So Paul says, my lack of wisdom in sharing with you when I first came wasn't because there isn't any to be learned, but because before you're going to grow in spiritual wisdom, you have to be a spiritual person. So I shared with you the fundamentals of the Christian faith, that you are a sinner condemned to hell and that God has demonstrated his love by sending his son Jesus to die in your place and that by the perfect righteous life of Jesus, he alone was qualified to stand in the place of sinners because if a sinning, if a sinning person dies, it's just cosmic justice. Sinners deserve death, but Jesus didn't deserve death. So he alone is qualified to stand in a sinner's place, to take a sinner's death and redeem them eternally before God. I shared this with you so that you would be spiritual people who would grow and receive spiritual wisdom. And then, you know, that's the explanation that we covered in chapter 2. And look at how he opens chapter 3. And yet I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but... As to carnal. Now, carnal is not an English word that we use a lot. It is an English word, but not one that shows up a lot. But it just means in the flesh. It's, it's the adjective for the flesh. You know, the flesh would be a noun, flesh. Carnal is the adjective of the flesh. It's fleshly, carnal. In other words, I can't... When I first showed up, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual people because you were mere humans. You were not spiritually alive. You're just alive in the body. Your heart is pumping. Your blood is flowing. Your lungs are breathing in and out. Your brain is functioning. But there is no spiritual life in your soul. And then the real condemning words. Look at this. He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. 
Because, verse 1, you were babes in Christ. You'd just gotten saved. You'd just experienced spiritual life. And it wasn't time to overwhelm this spiritual life that you were just experiencing by faith in Jesus with a ton of instruction and deep spiritual thought. It was, I fed you or need base stuff that newborns have to receive. You know, what does a newborn need? Basic nutrients in a form they can digest. That's what a newborn needs. What happens if you try to start giving a newborn baby complex foods that they're going to have to gnaw on it? It's not going to go well. Even if they can get it down, their stomach's going to be upset. I fed you like babes because you were babes. And that was okay. That wasn't wrong. But here is the condemnation. Verse 2, for until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able. You are still babies. Now, I don't like it when someone calls me a baby. I'm a grown man, 38 years old. Okay, so to some of you that may seem like a baby, to some of you it may seem like an old man, but I am not a baby, okay? We can agree that there's a lot in the world that I have still to experience, and that my experiences are not going to overlap with all of yours, but I don't like being called a baby, and I don't think the Corinthians enjoyed being called babies either. I don't mind being called a novice when I'm relatively new to something, but at this point, the Corinthians did not consider themselves even novices in the Christian faith. They had been at this long enough to begin to form their own spiritual classes, as we've seen. The followers of this guy and the followers of this guy, they thought that they were very well educated. And he is telling them, you are still babies. Verse 3, the reason. For you're still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? I love that phrase. I mean, I'm a man. Before me are assembled men and women. And yet in that phrase, doesn't it imply that there's an expectation that all of us do not behave as mere men and women? Do you see the expectation of something exceptional here? Do you see the expectation of something higher? I hope that appeals to you just a little bit. Just a little bit. I hope that it appealed to the Corinthians just a little bit that while we can acknowledge we are in the end here on this earth, men and women, we are called to something that is not merely human. We are called to something that is spiritual, that is godly, that is divine. And it's not enough for Christian people to be mere men, mere women. And he's not telling them that they're not Christians. He's saying you are behaving as mere men and women. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Can you hear how offended Paul was by this? Can you hear? I mean, when you start to quote, what, you ever been in an argument before? When you start to quote the other person's argument against them, you're pretty worked up at that point, aren't you? Right? You said, and I can't believe you said it, right? Well, I'm not saying Paul had that big tone of indignation, but he is quoting them against them. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Are you not carnal? Now, his grounds for saying they were babies had nothing to do with their knowledge, and you need to understand this. They may have understood the basic doctrines of the Christian faith better than some of us. I don't know. His grounds is their conduct. Their conduct. You do not have to be an incredibly spiritual person. In fact, you do not have to even be a Christian to understand the tenets of the Christian faith. You can be taught to have to be a learning person. And you can be taught the doctrines. You can be taught the tenets. But apart from the work of the Holy Spirit of God, you will not be spiritual. 
unless you grow up. The three things he says here are envy, strife, and divisions. Envy. Wanting what someone else has. Wanting what someone else receives. It can be material things, and it can be immaterial. If you've ever looked at someone else receiving praise and wished that it were you, wished that you could receive something like that, you know envy can be immaterial as well as material. Strife meaning conflict. Not meaning fighting and arguing all the time. We all know that's not how conflict usually shows up. Most people would prefer to avoid the fight or the conflict. The strife exists below the surface. And divisions. Divisions is the outcome of strife existing below the surface. Groups and factions. This, I would call this first section here in chapter 3, the reality check for the Corinthians. They thought they were spiritually mature because of their knowledge and understanding. They were, in fact, babies, and they had to do a reality check. It's interesting that Paul does not leap from here to the natural American conclusion. What's the American conclusion? If there's envy, if there's strife, if there's division, just... Find another church. That's the American conclusion. Just go somewhere else. But Paul doesn't tell him that. Instead, we have a long book of instruction to reconcile the doctrines, to call people to spiritual maturity, and to bring people into unity in the body of Christ. But that is not the American answer. The American answer is, this is uncomfortable I don't want to deal with this. I'm out of here. That is not the New Testament answer. I'm not saying there are never valid reasons that, should, that a person should leave a local church for. There certainly are. But having envy and strife and division that has not been worked through or dealt with, or that is not a good reason. That is not a good reason. Now, if you've tried to reconcile and you've tried to work through these things, and you are being prevented by something fundamental to the congregation, then you may have a cause. In most places, in most instances, that is not the case. Most places, it just lies dormant and undealt with until someone says, I've had enough. That's not Paul's approach. Next section, verse 5. Here is Paul launching off now into this whole idea of being carnal because you associate yourself with a particular guy. Okay, now here's, here's, here's what he says about this whole Paul versus Apollos argument. Verse 5, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? Now he knew who Paul and Apollos were. He's saying, but who really are these guys that you would want to model yourself after them? He says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? Now, here's what I think you should do with these next several verses. Every time it says the Lord did something or gave something, just highlight that or underline that and you'll get the gist of what Paul's about here. Okay, because it's not complicated. So here we go. Who then is Paul, who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, I started the church, Apollos came along and watered, he came along teaching, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is increasing, nor is he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, neither one is greater than the other. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. What is the emphasis here? If you are looking to a man for your discipleship and your, your ownership and your class of theology... You are doing this wrong. Men are not to be elevated and celebrated 
and held in some high esteem as if they're infallible characters. And I know this goes against the grain of everything that we have done to the evangelical church in America. Where many ministries feel like the pinnacle of their performance is a man who gets the opportunity or a woman who gets the opportunity to stand on a stage and speak before 2,000 people. And if you go to many prominent ministry websites, what's the image that splashes across the screen? It's, it's a man or a woman in front of a massive stadium or crowd of people. And I'm not here to judge or speak words of condemnation to any of those men or ministries. I'm simply saying a man or woman is not to be elevated in our spiritual deference. It is God's work and God's building and God's work in planting, maturing, growing us. We belong to Him. And the guy who stands up in front of 3,000 people or some of the, the, the most famous of these, the Billy Graham, 50,000 people, 100,000 people. Hear what this is saying. He is nothing more than Megan who comes faithfully and cleans the church throughout the week. Different function. Neither one of them are anything before the Lord except sinners saved and redeemed for his purposes. But that is not American. I gotta tell you. I'm not sure it's human. We want to put people on pinnacles. We want to lift people up, celebrate these massive things that they've done. It leads to bad things if we do that. That's what Paul is saying here. And it doesn't mean we never go to a conference and listen to somebody speak. It doesn't mean we never read a book. It doesn't mean that we never benefit from anything anyone's ever said or done. But be careful. Paul's not condemning Apollos. He's saying, how you are looking at this is wrong. Neither he who plants is anything, nor is he who waters. It's God who causes this to be valuable. That's the idea. In other words, Paul's job was to give effort. You know, Megan, I used you as an example. Your job is to give effort. It is God's job to produce. Now, the effort's important, which is why this passage is so personal and so life-changing. The effort is important. And you notice, he doesn't miss a heartbeat in verse 8 before telling us how important the effort is. Now look, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward. According to his labor. So effort is important. He doesn't want us to think that just because God is giving the increase, it's not important how much labor we give. The effort is extremely important. But the effort is not to be celebrated as if it's producing the results. In a strange way, I'm telling you, that when I stand up and declare the word of God to you on Sundays, the effort is good and God will reward the effort. I believe that by faith. That's, the, that's why I'm doing it. We'll talk about that more in a second. But if anything productive comes out of it, it was not because I stood up and declared it. God used this, but God produces what comes out of it. That may sound like a, well, you know, that kind of feels bad not being able to take any credit for doing the right thing. You should take some credit, Pastor. I mean, if somebody gets, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a freeing thing. This is a freeing thing. If I thought that your response to the gospel was contingent upon how well I did, I would not want to be in this role. <laughs> I don't know if I could sleep at night. Because that would mean I was partially to blame. 
when people don't get saved and when they live their life in sin. You don't understand. This is the best position to be in. Because what we are going to discover is that God loves me and He alone will judge my efforts and He alone will reward my efforts and He alone will cause whatever comes from it to happen on the earth. I can trust Him with that and just do what I'm supposed to do the best that I can do it. It's a freeing thing. He who plants and he who waters will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. Spiritual people, if the Corinthians were spiritual, spiritual people have their theology right here. Okay? I told you the first little set of verses, my... My title for that little section was a reality check for the Corinthians. Here's my little subtitle for verses 5 through 9. Spiritual people have their theology right here. If you don't have your theology right about this, you're going to be very carnal and fleshly because you're going to give too much credit to men and you're going to take too much credit yourself. You're not going to see that the one who plants and the one who waters is, verse 7, is, is neither anything, is nothing. You're not going to see it that way. Spiritual people have their theology right here. Okay, that brings us to verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now in my Bible, I circled the wise from wise master builder. And I circled the take heed where it says, but let each one take heed. And then I drew a little line connecting them because I want you to understand you are supposed to be wise and thoughtful about your efforts here. You're supposed to take heed and consider how you build on the foundation. Paul is saying, now verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is, I was a master builder, a wise master builder, which sounds like a pretty, pretty boastful thing to say. But he's saying, I didn't put a, for, a poor foundation down when I came to... Uh, the church in Corinth, I was a very wise master builder because I laid the only foundation that can be laid. I was not wise in the sense that I was crafty. I was wise in that I did the safe and secure and the only reasonable thing. You think of Jesus and his parable of the wise man and the foolish man here. The wise man who builds his house upon the rock and the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand, and in the parable the rains came down, and, and because the one's not built on the foundation, he's left in ruin. And Jesus says, so is he who, uh, who doesn't hear the, the word of God, the instructions of God, and do them. You know, Paul is saying, I was a wise master builder. Well, how were you so wise and masterful, Paul? Well, I'll tell you. I laid the only foundation that counts. That's what I did. I wasn't wise in the sense of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. I didn't innovate. I didn't add my own touch. Have you ever seen people lay a foundation before? Now, Carl, you have, right? You've done this, right? The guys who are coming in and laying a foundation, does it look like a super high-tech operate? They come in. They do what they're supposed to do excavation-wise. They gather the basic materials they're supposed to use, usually some form of concrete and rock, and they pour the foundation. They do it in a skillful way. But you would not mistake that for what's going on in the labs of Apple computers right now. It's pretty much uh, get there, make sure we have everything right, 
lay it and go kind of operation. Paul was a wise master builder because he didn't show up with innovations. He just, this is Jesus. This is what God has done for you. This is the danger you're in and this is the salvation offered to you. Here it is. And in that sense, Paul was a wise master builder. And then he says, Apollos came along, you know, and, and he, he built on it. Then somebody else will build on, the fo- on that foundation. But let each one take heed how he builds on the foundation. Now this is the interesting part. We all have the same foundation if you're a Christian. If you've got a different foundation than what I've got, you ain't a Christian. And, you know, if, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, came into this world, died on the cross to pay for your sin, rose from the grave three days later and has ascended into heaven and promises His return, promises you eternal life, promises you an inheritance in God's kingdom. If, that's, if the gospel is not your foundation, we don't have the same faith. I went through the first church membership class with someone yesterday and we sat down the very first thing we talked about let's talk about the church membership process and this is what the process looks like and at the end we're going to make sure before you become a member of our church that you understand and believe the right thing about the gospel which is not complicated but it must be right and without any additional flourishes but now assuming we've all received that same foundation individuals are going to build on that foundation in different ways. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying, take heed how you build on that foundation. Consider, be careful, give thought to what you do with your life after salvation, after eternity is secured for you. Take heed. Now, this goes against the grain of many evangelists who make it seem as if the chief goal in Christianity is simply to purchase fire insurance from hell. If God had intended to simply save you from eternal hell, and bring you into eternal life? Christian here today, why are you here? Why are you here? Now, Tim, I'm going to put you on the spot. How many years roughly have you been a Christian? Long time? How many decades? Are we talking 20 years, Tim? Okay. I guess I shouldn't have put him on the spot. He ain't even close to the right answer. Uh, 28. All right, thank you. I called him because I thought he would know. But anyway, 28 years. If God's purpose in saving Tim from eternal hell, if his purpose was to simply get him out of hell, then why has Tim been given 28 years here on this earth since salvation? If that was accomplished the moment the foundation of Jesus Christ was laid and Tim experienced spiritual life, as Paul's already said here, that he, a, a, a babe and, and he, he received spiritual life and he heard the... If that was God's purpose, why are you here, brother? Why didn't God take you home? He could have killed you. He could have raptured you. He could have gotten you to his purpose a lot faster. And it's been, is God just lazy that 28 years he has left Tim down here after he's already done with him? No, of course not. What does Ephesians chapter 2 tell us? You know, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. And then verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should perform. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. In other words, you've been saved by the grace of God. Not by anything you did. It wasn't by your works that you were saved. But now that you are saved, you are the craftsmanship of the Almighty God. Have any of you ever taken time 
to build something, to draw something, to paint something, to make something. Some of you will say no right away. No, I'm not artistic. I haven't done that. But the truth is you have. You know, James, you'd be in that group, right? James, now, I've seen you build some things, right? Yeah, I've seen some of the things you built, and some of them turned out pretty good. I went over to your house. I saw this elaborate thing the birds built here, and I thought it was elaborate. It was like a Christmas tree. You know, Chris, you were telling me how, you know, you could have paid, but this was like, it looked like a decoration you'd buy at Hobby Lobby. So they built some stuff, okay? But I know James does not claim to be a super artistic person, so I can pick on him here. But you know what? James has spent time trying to build teams. He has spent time at work on various projects. When you pour your workmanship into something, you're hoping at the end that you produce something to display and to demonstrate and that will be functional and that something that you can have a sense of pride and pleasure in doing. It doesn't always turn out that way. <laughs> some of our craftsmanship, some of our workmanship is not, you know, it's fallible. It's not, it's not pristine all the time, Right? We can't all be Ryan Toms, you know? Every project is exactly the way we planned it to be, right? But the Bible says you are God's workmanship. And the reason why Tim has been left on this earth for 28 years is so that God can demonstrate his work through Tim's life. That is an amazing thing. And Paul is saying, take heed what you do with that gift. Why? His answer, God is going to judge it. Look at what he says. Let each one of you take heed how he builds on it. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Is it gold, silver, and precious stone? Or is it wood, hay, and stubble? Though the fire is going to show. Metaphorically here, the fire is going... He's not talking about the fire of hell. And see that here in verse 14. What's the outcome of this judgment going to be? Verse 14. If anyone's work which he has built on this foundation, on it, on Jesus, if anyone's work endures, endures what? Endures the fire, the test. He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is not, when it says fire, we think fire and we automatically think hell. That's not what this is saying. This is talking about Christian people who are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the building metaphor is why he uses fire in the metaphor. Because one of the strongest tests that a building can be put up against is a fire. And if my home catches on fire, it's not going to make it. I mean, I'm going to need someone to intervene fairly quick because if it's just left to burn, my house is made of wood, okay? Um, you may have thought I had some, you know, hidden, you know, you, some of you know I renovated that house, but I didn't use gold, silver, and precious stone. I didn't use diamonds and indestructible material. I didn't use marble. and You know, I didn't use it. I wasn't using granite. No, I used two-by-fours, wood, plywood. And that might alarm some of you now that you know that I've done it and, and you may not want to visit as much as you did before. But that's okay. I'm content with it. I think it's going to hold me up and I've got seven people living in the house. So far, so good. But... Under the pressure of a fire, it ain't going to make it. It ain't going to make it. There are buildings that under pressure of fire, entire structures of that building are going to make it. Are going to make it. Now the stuff inside, made of 
you know, consumable material isn't going to make it. But the stuff that was invested into the structure remaining, it's going to make it. Now, the metaphor here is you get saved. And you're going to live your life. In Tim's case, 28 years so far. And if Tim died tomorrow, which, brother, please, please be careful tomorrow because I don't want to get blamed for, for an untimely death on, on Monday. Just be, make it to the end of next week, okay? But if Tim dies tomorrow, it won't be my fault. But if he does, 28 years of stuff is going to be tested. Not immediately, but when the Lord Jesus returns. On the day of the Lord Jesus' judgment of the saints. That's more of a prophetical discussion we're not going to get into now. But it's going to get judged. Now, how Tim lived before the 28 years ain't going to be judged for Tim. That was judged at the cross. That's what salvation does. But what he's done with the last 28 years will be judged. And metaphorically, the evaluation is going to be like lighting a house on fire, which is a very simple test. And whatever remains, he'll receive a reward for. And whatever got burned up, it's not going to be there, and he's not going to receive a reward for it. In other words, this is really a discussion about whether or not you are storing up for yourself treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. This is really a Sermon on the Mount issue here. This was life-changing for me. Notice this. The evaluation of Tim's building for 28 years will not be based on what all of his efforts accomplished. That's very carnal. Uh, if I take the reins at work and take on some new sales position in my organization, I promise you, my evaluation and compensation is not going to be based on my hard work. It's going to be based on whether or not my hard work succeeds and accomplishes what it was expected to accomplish. That's what it's going to be about, ultimately. That's how this world works, right? We all know that. But when I get to heaven, the evaluation of my life, of my 28 or however many years, is going to be about my labor and my effort. And this is what Paul is zeroing in on all the way back to verse 8. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. He's already said they're nothing in terms of to be celebrated, the guy who plants and waters. God is the one who's producing. He says... He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own what? Results? No. Labor. Labor. This appealed to me on a fundamental level at a very desperate point in my life where I looked up in my mid-20s and I, I was very disheartened for a lot of circumstances and I asked, how then am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to be doing? And this passage hit me with an epiphany. Because a lot of times I was discouraged from doing things because I didn't think anything was going to come out of them. And then I realized, hold on. That's not how God is evaluating his people. <laughs> hold on. It's true. You may do this. And you may show up here. And you may do this. And you may sacrifice here. And you may not see any results. Or at least you may not see results that seem to go along with the amount of sacrifice and time that you put into those. And from an earthly perspective, that can be very depressing and very discouraging, right? But that's not how God is doing the evaluation. So what this really becomes is, do I believe in eternal reward or am I just trying to purchase fire insurance the person who believes in eternal reward will live one way the person who is just trying to get a, a get out of hell free card will live a very different way and their effort and what they're willing to sacrifice and what they're willing to give will always be fueled, the decision-making process, on what do I think it's really going to accomplish? You know that's true. You cannot have been a Christian for any length of time and not experience the pull of this. 
you say you're going to agree to teach a Sunday school class. You go to the Sunday school class. A pitiful three people show up. They're not pitiful, but the number was not what you expected. You try. You work. You labor. And at the end of the year, there are two people now. <laughs> Neither one of them seeming much more spiritual than when you started. In the world's eyes, this was a tremendous waste of time. I'm not very good at this. I don't think that this is worth my efforts. It's someone else's fault. I'm not good enough. Whatever it is. God measures the labor and the effort. I was in a Bible study sitting about right there uh, 20 years ago when a very well-meaning uh, brother in Christ heard something along these lines being taught. And the reaction was, well, yeah, but a Christian should not be serving the Lord for an eternal reward. They should be, you know, just serving the Lord because they want to serve the Lord. Folks, that is wrong. If you serve the Lord when you want to serve the Lord, you are missing, you are missing the counsel of Jesus to take up your cross daily and follow him. That is not accurate. I, let me give, I want to read to you some Bible verses to get this point home. It is not selfish to serve the Lord for eternal reward. It is in your best self-interest to do that. That doesn't make it selfish. Listen to this. This is Jesus. When people are persecuted for Jesus' sake, this is what he tells them. Rejoice, Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. It seems like Jesus wanted them to be encouraged and motivated by a great heavenly reward in the face of persecution. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. When it comes to loving your enemies. For Jesus, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Wait a minute, I thought we should just love because Jesus loved us. Well, yeah, that's the theological reason. What's the motivation? If you love those who love you, this is Jesus, what reward have you? Don't the tax collectors even do that? When performing charitable deeds, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 5 of that same chapter, on praying. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners, that they can be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. If you want their reward, go do that. If you want your Heavenly Father's reward, don't. About fasting, same chapter, Sermon on the Mount. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, so that they will appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. You don't do it because you want a different reward. When serving other ministers of the gospel, Matthew chapter 10, verse 41, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Megan, Hallie, whoever else comes to help you clean here, free of charge, if when you're cleaning and serving and working here, you are doing it as a ministry to the ministry of Bible teaching that happens here, you will receive the reward of the one who is standing up and teaching the Bible. I want to. If I'm standing here in a, a sanctuary that is clean because of the efforts of Megan Belcher and her crew of of teenagers. My reward is not going to be any greater than hers. She is working and laboring. He goes on. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. I love that part. You know why? 
You want to know at least one activity that is gold, silver, and precious stone? You want to know at least one activity that's not going to be a wood, hay, and stubble, burn up and lose the reward? Giving a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple of Jesus Christ. On sharing the gospel, John 4, 36. This is when Jesus says the fields are white and ready for the harvest. He who reaps receives wages and he who gathers fruit and gathers fruit then for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. That wages, the word wages, same word in the Greek for reward. Same exact word in the text. On working for rewards. 2 John 1.8 Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things that we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Last chapter of the Bible. So the last one I'll quote here. Jesus' promise to encourage His church. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. And yet, 1 Corinthians tells me in verse 15 that some people are going to suffer tremendous loss and that some people who were saved 28 years ago, as Tim was, are going to watch as 28 years of life that God gave them gets essentially all burned up in smoke. And they learn, face to face with the Lord, that despite decades on this earth to demonstrate His power in their life, they did precious little of anything. And they'll be saved because the foundation was Jesus Christ, yet as through fire, Paul warns. Now, if that causes them to mourn or be sad, they can be comforted because the Bible promises the Lord will wipe away every tear from every eye. But that is loss. The promise that God will wipe away every tear from every eye does not mean there will be, when we look back on our life, no regrets if we did an awful job, a terrible job. Praise the Lord and the Lord's comfort. Last point. Sometimes when I think of heavenly reward, I don't know if you ever do this, but I just wonder what in the world it, it's going to be. And I've heard theologians take stabs at this, and I've tried to read the cross-references that they you know, use to explain their positions. They're not very strong because the Bible doesn't explain the reward in tremendous detail. Now, the Bible tells us a lot of great things about eternal life. But it doesn't go and say, hey, the reward is precisely this, here, there, 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 there. So the reward, I, when I wonder about the reward, this is what I have to do. I have to trust on faith that God knows me, and so it's going to be a good reward for me. <laughs> Those of you with children will relate to this, right? You ever get real excited, mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, about taking your kids and showing them something for the first time, and you describe it, and they're not enamored with the description. <laughs> when, when you tell them, no, no, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go to a cabin in the mountains. They're like, what's that like? Well, you know, there's, there, there's our mountains around. And, you know, there are, and it's really pretty. And they're like, uh, can we go to like Chuck E. Cheese or something instead? You know, and they don't get it, right? But mom and dads have a little bit more insight into what their child might like and appreciate sometimes than the child, right? You ever have a food and the first time you put it in front of the child, they're like, ah, right? And some of you have like a few of my children, very stubborn children, who even when you can tell they liked it after they tasted it, refuse to admit that they liked it. And then they come back a year later, later and all of a sudden their tastes have changed, right? In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is if God is a good father, when he promises you a reward, can we just have enough faith to trust that it is going to be rewarding? <laughs> that it's going to be good? Now I'll tell you, if I could determine the reward right now, I'd say, you know, it'd be great if, 
if eternal life was like me being around all of my family and the people that I love and I get to play basketball in a body that is not this one and I get to play golf and that would be that'd be really cool for me you know that's I would feel good about that right but that is like my kids saying I want to go to Chuck E. Cheese and not the ocean you know because I don't know how can I know this world is all I've seen this is all I've experienced and I gotta be honest with you most of it ain't that great. And even the stuff I get really excited about, most of the time, after it's done or after it's worn off, it ain't that great anymore either. I've met some really wealthy people. I get really excited every year when I get to take my family down to the ocean and we get to go to the beach. I've met wealthy people who own private homes on elaborate beach islands. They don't sound excited about it at all. I think, how can they not be excited? They live on the beach. This is, we go there for vacation. But it's no big deal. That's the lasting effect of the best that this world has to offer. Now, you have a choice with what you do with a message like this. What I would like to encourage you to do is take heed and think about what you are doing. I am suggesting to you that just because the study might be boring, you might not want to miss women's Bible study or men's Bible study. I'm suggesting that just because you might not seem to get a lot out of it, you might want to gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ and pray on Wednesday nights or whenever. I'm suggesting that serving children and serving people who are not grateful (laughs) and who don't go out of their way to write you personalized cards and letters might be worth more than you think. What I, and it changed my life when I came to grips with this passage and I just said, you know what? I, as best as I possibly can, I am never going to say no to serving the Lord again. If there's an opportunity to serve the Lord and I can do it, no matter how mundane, no matter how trivial, I'm going to sacrifice and my goal is going to be to do as well as I can do in whatever that is. And I'm not going to evaluate it based on, well, how'd that turn out? Was that exciting and interesting? No, I'm going to look, I'm going to take the Warren Buffett investment strategy here. I gave my high school Sunday school class an assignment. They have to watch one video so they know who Warren Buffett is next, uh, by next week. So uh, anyway, if, if you have a high schooler and you're not sure exactly why they're watching a video to see who Warren Buffett is, that's why. It's my fault. But I'm going to invest in the boring. I'm going to invest in the mundane. Because to me, it's going to be putting something away that will last and be worth eternal value. I'm not going to look at what I do with my time as what's the most fun, and what's the most exciting, and what's the most fulfilling, and what feels the best, and what's make, what makes me excited, what leaves with a smile on my face, and on and on and on. That's like people who are buying and selling stocks in the stock market left and right. Price goes up, they're excited. Price goes down, they're depressed. Blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to do that. I am going to, for however many years I have, just invest the best that I can And whatever God gives me an opportunity to do for his kingdom. Whatever that is. And I'm going to trust that he will give me a reward commiserate with the effort when the time comes. That is a much better way to live. It is a rich and fulfilling way to live. If you will do that, you will feel satisfied in your walk with the Lord. You will be at peace with your efforts and work. I promise you, you will grow spiritually. And so that's what I want to encourage you to take heed and consider. The long-term, mundane investment into the kingdom of God that this world thinks is ridiculous and a waste of time. It's not. It's not. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you and... And I've been so blessed by uh, this passage of Scripture. I guess I, I run the risk of, of overselling it or 
I'm sure it sounds foolish to some degree. I hope it doesn't sound condemning. I am no man's judge of the work that they're doing. That, chapter 4, we'll see. That our, our lives should be judged by no man. But Father, it's my prayer this morning that every person here will do the evaluation of whether or not God's craftsmanship, your workmanship, is demonstrated in the way that they're living and whether or not it's wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stone that they're constructing the most valuable asset we have. Our time. No amount of money ever bought a second of time. Father, help us to be wise and thoughtful and purposeful with what we do with this most precious resource, our time. Father, thank you for the gift of your son Jesus Christ to buy us an eternal abundance of time. Help us not to waste what we have here. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.